In a stunning cultural shift sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, suddenly it's mainstream to oppose war and support the right of occupied peoples to resist. Those of us who've been railing against the scourge of war for a long time have been surprised to see apps like Uber and Airbnb transform into fundraising platforms for Ukrainian refugees, mainstream media outlets airing instructions for how to build bombs to destroy Russian vehicles, and the gambit of celebrities declaring Russia must be tried at The Hague for war crimes. At the same time, the left is under attack from establishment media for simply drawing attention to this hypocrisy. On March 4th, the National Post ran an article with the headline, Progressives weaponizing support for Ukraine to draw parallels with other conflicts is toxic. The previous day, Vice News ran an article about a meme that compared Russia's bombing to illegal campaigns by the US, Israel, and Saudi Arabia as, quote, Kremlin misinformation. It's clear what's happening. The US war machine and its loyal media lapdogs want this moment to drum up jingoism and reject internationalism. But as the world focuses on the unfolding war crisis in Ukraine, as we are too, we can't give Washington the luxury of being silent about the criminal wars it's currently waging. Perhaps the worst in the world right now is in Yemen, where the US-backed Saudi war, despite Biden's pledge to withdraw support, is now in a genocidal stage. To update everyone on what's happening in Yemen and how this human rights catastrophe began, I'm joined by Manar Muhawish, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. Manar, thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about what just happened in Yemen this last month, which was the U.S.-Saudi coalition bombed a telecommunications facility that knocked out the internet nationwide for several days. During the outage, they relentlessly bombed several sites, committing several massacres, basically, under the cover of darkness here. Um, that horrific bombing of the detention facility where at least 70 people were killed, well more than 200 injured, I'm reading reports of now, when an airstrike hit this detention center in just one of these attacks. I mean, I have no idea what else happened under the cover of darkness. I mean, the internet was purposefully taken down. Just incomprehensible levels of suffering, Manar, on top of the statistic that we've known about for years, which is tens of millions of people just constantly on the brink of starvation. I mean, two thirds of the total population basically on the brink of starvation because of this blockade, the sanctions and this relentless campaign onslaught against the people of Yemen. So let's go more into what just happened and what precipitated it, Minar. Well, uh, January in Yemen, you know, the month of January saw the most violent uh, bombing sprees by the U.S.-Saudi-led coalition since 2018. And we have to keep into consideration that this is under President Joe Biden's watch, the same president that, you know, during his campaigning for president, he claimed he would end the war on Yemen. He made a promise uh, on the campaign trail that he would end the war on Yemen. And yet here we are, uh, just about a year into his presidency, and actually the U.S.-backed uh, Saudi bombing killings um, of Yemenis has increased 
under um, his watch. So it was a false promise. It was a fake promise to end this war. And now we're seeing uh, the results of that. And in this last month, um, Oxfam is now reporting that a Yemeni person is killed by these bombs about every hour. Holy every shit. hour. I mean, when we talk about uh, Yemen being the world's worst humanitarian crisis, it's not an exaggeration. 23 million people were estimated in the month of, or in the year of 2018, 23 million people were estimated by the UN to be facing starvation. And it's now 2022. So where does that put us today? And so during the month of January, we're seeing this escalation by this U.S.-Saudi-led coalition, which makes up the United States, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, countries like Egypt, also uh, Great Britain, who are basically arming uh, the coalition, uh, providing them with Raytheon uh, laser-guided missiles, Lockheed Martin uh, bombs and missiles, and BAA systems um, bombs to be dropped on civilian targets. And that's what this war is. It's a war on the civilian population of Yemen. You know, the mainstream corporate media likes to present this crisis and conflict through the lens of a sectarian lens, like it's, you know, a Shia uh, movement targeting the Saudis because they're Sunni. But that's only to dehumanize and really belittle the real struggle for human rights in Yemen. And so uh, just in the month of January, January 6th to February 2nd, more than 200 adults and 15 children were killed. Um, another 500 people were injured. And as you mentioned in your intro, uh, the Saudis bombed a major telecommunications tower, which knocked out all of the electricity and internet access for the entire country. I mean, just imagine if Russia did this. Just imagine if Venezuela did this. Just imagine if Iran did this. It would be headline news everywhere. And yet we did an analysis at Mint Press to look at any of the news coverage, and not a single mainstream corporate media outlet had covered that the United U.S.-Saudi-backed-led coalition had knocked out the internet out of Yemen. And during this time, of course, the things that were bombed were houses and farms, residential homes, of course, um, destroying businesses and um, just making, just devastating the country further, further into the Stone Ages. It's quite a devastating war that's taking place right now. I mean, it's just so shocking to me. There's so many levels here. Uh, the fact that this has been going on for so long and it's almost just like normalized. It's like the pandemic. It's just like it's just background noise for a lot of people like, oh, yeah, we're still, you know, Yemen. Yemen is still incurring this horrific, catastrophic, you know, man-made catastrophe. Let's not forget that, that this is completely manufactured because I guess Yemen imports like 90 percent of its food. So when you have something like this naval blockade, that is preventing any sort of like goods from getting in. I mean, this is this is what causes such a grave catastrophe in terms of people needing humanitarian assistance and relying on humanitarian assistance. Can you tell us what exactly caused this dramatic escalation? Were the Houthis advancing more territory? Like, why did they just start randomly um, committing all these massacres? I know that this happens, of course, 
all the time, but like it seemed like it really ramped up recently. Yes, they've been gaining more ground and more power, and they have actually been manufacturing much of their own weaponry. It's much of it is homemade, and a lot of it is also leftover weaponry from the Soviet Union era. And so they've been using these weapons, they've been manufacturing them on their own, um, homemade stuff. And they have been quite capable of responding to the Saudis and to the UAE and doing these defense defensive attacks um, that have been targeting Saudi oil fields and UAE oil fields as well uh, and oil uh, facilities, manufacturing facilities. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why things have escalated in the last uh, month or so is because the Houthis are now after literally like seven years of war are finally responding with um, missile attacks targeting Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And whatever you may think about these responses by the Houthi rebels, we have to think about this from a broader context of seven years of devastation towards Yemen. I mean, you very well said this is a catastrophe. It's a major human rights catastrophe where 90% of the food is being imported and most of that food is being blocked because of a U.S.-backed Saudi um, blockade that is blocking intentionally humanitarian aid, any sort of food and medicine from accessing people. So we have now over 23 million people who are on the brink of death, starving, and the Saudis are deliberately targeting farms, grain silos, water facilities. They're creating a you know a um, you know a famine. It's a man-made crisis, and it's man-made famine. And so now the Houthis are responding. And so what are the Saudis and the U- the Emiratis doing? What they know best, which is to respond uh, and escalate this even further. Um, and it's so ironic because just in the last 24 hours, both Mike Pompeo and Secretary of State uh, you know Blinken. Uh, release statements that they really care about the Yemeni people and they really care about the suffering there and they're going to be committed to sending more aid there. But this aid that we've reported at Mint Press, many much of this aid is not even reaching the people. It's being blocked. And even aid that's being promised to the people by the World Food Program is not even reaching the people. And if it does reach the people, a lot of it is expired food, which we have filmed, and a lot of it has bugs inside the food, and a lot of the food is molding. And so imagine just already being starving and just how humiliating it is to then receive these parcels of food that are just with bugs inside of them. That's mold. horrible. And it's just humiliating for these people. And so now the Houthis are rebelling, they're resisting. And the media is now focusing on those missiles that are reaching Saudi Arabia, those missiles that are reaching the UAE, with barely a mention of the devastation that these bombs have done on the people there. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about targeting herds of sheep and goats. It's the most cruel and barbaric bombing campaign you know, and the U.S. uses this cover of, oh, well, it's Saudi. It's not us. You know, Saudi Arabia is doing this. We're just we're just selling the weapons. But as we know, Minar, it goes far beyond that. Before we get into the actual U.S. role right now and Biden's shift um, with the rhetoric alone, can you just debunk this narrative that the Houthis are backed by Iran and they're basically a proxy of Iran? Because every single corporate news article that you read provides not the context that you're talking about, of course, but it always frames the conflict in 
Iran-backed Houthi rebels or Iran proxy Houthi rebels. So it makes everyone think that Iran is just fighting all of these other countries using this proxy force. Well, you know, as we have covered since the beginning of this crisis, um, since 2015, from the very beginning of this war, you know, I think it's important that we have to kind of even look even further back to debunk, debunk this narrative. Like Yemen is a geopolitical you know, choke point for the United States in its drone war, in its war against al-Qaeda. And it really is fueling the military-industrial complex, this crisis, from the very beginning of 2015 and before that by nearly a decade under the rule of Ali uh, Saleh. And so to justify this kind of warfare, to justify uh, the United States to be, um, you know, selling billions of dollars worth of weapons to the Saudis, it has to justify it through a sectarian lens. Every single war in the Middle East is justified through that lens, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Libya, uh, you know, doesn't matter what country it is, or even the regional, you know, proxy war that's going on in the Middle East, it's always framed through this um, narrative of a Sunni-Shia divide, when in reality, it's the United States waging a cold war um, against China and using uh, and Russia and then also using the Saudis and the Emiratis and Israel, countries like Israel and Egypt to fulfill um, their geopolitical uh, aspirations in the region. And I think it's really important to note that while yeah, uh, Iran has on a verbal level stated their support for the Houthis and the resistance movement in uh, Yemen, they have not provided any sort of arms to the Yemeni people there. All of those arms have been manufactured and have been made uh, homemade, as I mentioned before. And so, you know, I will never forget when, uh, um, I think it was, was it Susan Rice when she was, um, when she was uh, stating that all of these weapons were coming from Iran blatantly, just, just, just <laughs> presenting, like, these weapons are coming from Iran. And none of them were actually coming from Iran. And that's what the media does. They just state things as if they're fact and nobody questions those narratives. And so that's the narrative that gets pushed through mainstream media. And it's it's on the front pages of The Washington Post, of The New York Times, you know, all of these newspapers on CNN, on Fox News. That's how the Houthis are continuously described. And it dehumanizes the entire struggle of the country. It dehumanizes... Um, the struggle for human rights, for access to clean water, and just the the, the plight <laughs> to survive yeah, it's de- and live. It's delegitimizing these people and also completely stripping their agency. It reminds me of when, you know, like, for example, Biden just bombing Syria um, when he immediately got into office and it was alleged that they were Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. And it's like, I'm sorry that that everyone who's resisting like U.S. militarism and policies there are not just Iran-backed, like nameless, faceless proxy forces that are being like puppeted by Iran. I mean, it's just such a cartoonish, villainous nonsense. And And also, how could they get weapons there? There's a huge naval blockade that's preventing anything from getting into these people. Exactly. The United States and Saudi Arabia and the UAE and even um, now Israel which has entered uh, the playing field, all have control over all of the borders and and the uh, shipping ports in Yemen. So there's just no way for Iran to be, you know, 
funneling weapons in there. But, you know, this this is the same kind of narrative of uh, any sort of dissent that takes place in the United States. If you question any sort of narrative and provide an alternative or you resist, you're immediately labeled as a Russian agent or Iranian agent or, um, you know, supporting of, you know, Islamic terrorism or whatever that is. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about what Biden has done, because as you mentioned, he promised to end the U.S. support for the Yemen war. This was on the heels of Trump vetoing the war powers resolution attempt to do just that in Congress. Of course, the, you know, I think Chris Murphy, Bernie Sanders, other key figures who were trying to bring this up for a vote. And Trump, of course, vetoes it. So I think a lot of us were optimistic that, no, of course, Biden wasn't really going to change much, but at least there was some sort of optimism that he was going to stop selling weapons to this genocidal, you know, like stop actually providing intelligence, refueling. I think that they stopped refueling during Trump. But um, but like military figures who are offering assistance, you know, and selling parts. I mean, there's so many facets that go into the U.S. support. So Biden promised an end to all of this. He barely changed the policy at all, Menar. I mean, What's so fascinating about this, the transition from Trump to Biden, is that people stopped caring. It's like it's so insidious because I would rather have people be outraged that, you know, when Trump vetoed that war powers resolution, I'd rather have people still talking about it, being like, oh, my God, we need to do something about this. Now Biden gets in, changes the rhetoric, says that we're basically doing defensive operations, not offensive. But as you just mentioned, I mean, Missiles being launched uh, to UAE and Saudi targets in terms of like oil fields and stuff. That is what Saudi declares in a a defensive war. Anything that the Houthis are doing to them is declared, their response is declared defensive. So it's so insidious the way that this language has changed, but no actual policy shift on the ground. This distinction between defensive and offensive is completely meaningless. And I would argue it's actually a very dangerous rebranding that seeks to normalize this genocidal warfare and basically put liberals' minds at ease that something has been done when, in fact, nothing has been done. I mean, that's literally the definition of propaganda, isn't it? Is to kind of switch the narrative and flip the narrative, I guess you could say. And that's what is happening uh, with the Biden administration, with the Saudis, the UAE, and then also with the mainstream corporate media. Um, They're now painting the resistance as the ones that are targeting the Saudis and the UAE. And so now the the Biden administration and the Saudis and the UAE are acting in defense, completely ignoring the fact that they've been bombing this country to smithereens for the past um, seven years. And since Biden got into office, I mean, he's already approved and sold um, over $28.3 billion worth of arms uh, to Saudi Arabia. I'm sorry, no, that was that was since the, the war had begun, excuse me. And so immediately um, he has already approved over six hundred million dollars worth of missile air to missile um, uh, defense systems to the Saudis. And that's after he vowed to uh, end the war. He's already approved 20 separate weapons contracts worth just shy of $1.2 billion just to Saudi Arabia alone. That's not even, that does not even include um, the UAE. And so we have in this package $100 million uh, shipment of Black Hawk helicopters, uh, support for Apache gunships, and $78 million deal to buy 36 cruise missiles. Um, 
And so the, the most recent one, though, is the $650 million deal uh, of the air-to-air uh, missiles. And all of these bombs have been used to target mostly food supplies and civilian uh, infrastructures. And one of the most um, noteworthy, um, maybe not noteworthy, but I think the one that people remember the most is when Saudi Arabia bombed a school bus. And there were children that were on their way to school and the Saudis bombed that school bus. And the children on that school bus uh, died. Actually, Mint Press was the one who broke that story. And that story went viral and it was then thereafter picked up by several media outlets. And it was because of our sources on the ground. And a lot of this coverage, by the way, can be found on Mint Press. Um, Alan McLeod recently did a really incredible um, study um, based on the Department of Defense documents that reveals you know, every single weapon that was sold um, to the Saudis since the war began, um, including, and it breaks down the 20 separate deals inked during uh, Biden's uh, presidency. And so I just, you know, I was actually one of the people that didn't believe Biden that he was going to have <laughs> war in Yemen because the war in Yemen is twofold. One is the U.S.-Saudi-led war in Yemen that's bombing the country to smithereens. The other aspect of the war is the war on the south. Uh, there is an effort right now to secede the southern part of Yemen and to make it into its own country. And the UAE is actually behind that effort alongside uh, the United States, of course, and Israel. The UAE, which is rarely mentioned, Abby, when in coverage of um, of Yemen, because I, I really believe that the, the war that's taking place in the southern part of Yemen is the secret war. Um, and this is why, like, when people like Bernie Sanders say, like, we were going to end support to the Saudis for the war in Yemen, no mention is ever given to what's taking place in the southern part of the country. And that is over 600,000 uh, 600, United Arab Emirate troops are stationed in the southern part of Yemen today, right now. They are being trained by the United States and by Israel. Uh, the United States helped the United Arab Emirates set up black sites, torture sites, sexual torture sites that make Abu Ghraib look nothing in comparison to what's taking place in Yemen. Thousands of Yemeni men have gone missing. They have disappeared. Uh, and they people believe that they are in these uh, black sites by uh, the UAE. And so we can talk day and night about ending the U.S. support for the Saudis bombing campaign in Yemen, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. We have to, if we're going to talk about ending the war, we have to talk about what else is happening in the southern part of Yemen and also the fact that the United Arab Emirates with full funding and support and training by the United States is also occupying the, uh, the islands of Socotra, these very beautiful, beautiful islands um, with these uh, very beautiful trees and plants that you don't see anywhere else in the world is occupying these islands with Israel, with Israel, okay? What the hell is Israel doing in Yemen, right? It, with Israel, they're occupying uh, these islands. They have set up and built already today, right now, they have built uh, an intelligence gathering hub to spy for the United States and for Israel and the UAE on countries like Iran and China and the uh, Horn of Africa countries that are now uniting against U.S. imperialism and economic sabotage like Ethiopia and Eritrea. And so um, 
We also have to talk about the control over Yemen's ports, why that's so important, because Israel uh, also funnels weapons through these ports, through the seaports, um, and they use these ships to funnel weapons and spies through these um, ports to then go attempt assassination attempts on Iranian nuclear scientists. And so Yemen itself is not just the, the, you know, the Saudi-led coalition bombing the northern part. There's a whole strategic aspect of this war that's not even being discussed really anywhere. <laughs> I mean, we are one of the only organizations that is, that is covering the overall picture of what's taking place in Yemen. And it's really, really sad because um, if we look at the entire conflict as a whole, Yemen right now is fueling the military-industrial complex. It's fueling U.S. geopolitical um, interests in its in its fight against Russian and Chinese influence around the world and economic interests, and expanding its influence for Israel. And it's just fueling and lining the pockets of weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. It's really, really an upsetting war. There's so much that you just said that I had no idea was going on, Minar, um, and I feel like I'm someone who's following the news pretty closely, so it's pretty alarming that I didn't know um, about all this geostrategic interests from Israel and other U.S. proxy forces that are utilizing uh, Yemen's land yeah. for intelligence gathering, for essentially torture sites. I mean, God knows what else is happening there Exactly under the cover of this war. Um, what would that look like if there was a secession between the North and the South? I mean, is is the U.S. like interested in this plan and would they just allow the Houthis to control the North and then take the South? Like what what's the end goal with where the where the North would be left? Balkanization has always been um you know, a a goal of any empire, because when you can break down countries, you can break them up mm-hmm. through, you know, tribes, through sectarianism, through religion. And the, the tinier the country, the more you can have control over it. And so that's why, you know, after the war in Iraq, I mean, how much talk was there to balkanize Iraq? Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just look at Africa, the way that the British Empire uh, and uh, the French and, you know, others they broke up Africa into these tiny countries, and that's what they're trying to do in a lot of the Middle East. And it is just more for control. And no, they wouldn't allow the Houthis to have control over the North. I mean, that would be like the last thing mm-hmm. that um, they would do. But I think what they would do is break it up based on tribe and sectarianism. So, or sectar- sect, excuse me. I don't know why I keep saying sectarianism. Sect, <laughs> based on yeah, sect. Sect. Yeah. sect, based on sect. Because, you know, Yemen is a very diverse country in terms of sects. It's a Muslim country. Um, there are, you know, Sunnis and there are Shias and there are Zaydis uh, and the Houthis make up uh, the Zaydi sect. And so, and, and that's also part of like that narrative of, you know, they're a proxy of Iran. They're not even technically Shia. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's also just a falsity of, of mainstream corporate media. So it really is just uh, an, uh, it's just, you know, it's an eye on balkanization, which is really um, just a means to control the region even further. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the Berlin conference. This was when 
colonizing powers, like imperialist powers at the time, just literally carved up Africa and gave everyone a piece of the pie. Sykes-Pico, same thing in the Middle East. You know, a lot of people have no concept of this history and they just think that there's warring religions and tribal conflicts in these two regions. And it's like, oh, well, this is the way it's always been. No, in fact, this was imposed deliberately by colonizing powers. And that's why we see the problems that have arisen from this carving up, callously carving up, which is like the flick of a fucking wrist. I mean, there was no thought put into how things were divided among like longstanding cultural heritage and historical importance of the of these places. Just disgusting. You know, the fact that they're trying to do this again in Yemen is just it's unconscionable, Manar. Let's talk about exactly, you know, the U.S. role goes far beyond this. As we mentioned, you know, even if the U.S. stopped selling weapons, let's just say that, in fact, Biden did that, which he hasn't. Um, the naval blockade is really where the crux of this catastrophe lies, because as long as you are blocking assistance from entering and the U.S. is complicit in the blockade, what are we even talking about here? I mean, Saudi and Emirates don't make weapons, right? So they're buying all these weapons from the U.S. I think other, you know, the U.K., of course, um, I'm not sure what other countries are selling them weapons, but they have to buy weapons from the U.S. and its junior collaborators. And I was actually alarmed to find out that, you know, it goes far beyond that. I thought that during Trump, you know, I know that the refueling stopped, but I I thought that we were like way more limited in our role other than like selling the weapons and then just being like, okay, like we don't know what they do with the weapons. We just hope they use them defensively. But in fact, no, commanders are there helping them choose targets still. The UK and the US are, are advising everything. They are playing, in fact, the most significant role. Um, maintaining intelligence and logistical support for training Saudi soldiers. You mentioned all of these troops that are, you know, boots are on the ground. There's Saudi soldiers who are being trained by U.S. Our tax dollars are training this genocidal army. I mean, the fact that Blinken is now actually trying to redesignate, or I guess the pressures on him to redesignate the Houthis, a terrorist organization, which is one of Trump's last moves, just another cruel, barbaric, vicious act on his way out the door to just basically make it harder for these people to get humanitarian assistance, because a lot of these people who are suffering are obviously under Houthi control in the North. And so to slap this terrorist designation on them just makes it so much more complicated for aid groups, for assistance to get in. It's like Gaza. And this is on purpose. This is literally a purposeful policy to make it harder, to actually try to force these people into submission. Menar, this has never even worked. Like sanctioning countries into starvation, you know, killing 500 million children in, in Iraq in the 90s. It's like this policy of starving people to oust their rulers is like such a tried and failed thing. Having this be done. Right. Under this liberal president, so-called liberal president, um, masking it all under, you know, human rights, advancing human rights. It's just you just really cannot make this up. I mean, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I guess I wanted to just briefly talk about you mentioned bombing the bus full of school kids. And that was like intentional, too. Like they knew that there were school children on the bus and they were like, I mean, basically, I guess they think that they're just going to grow up to be Houthis. And so why not just you know, why not just kill these kids while they're young? I mean, that's literally like you saw death squads in Afghanistan with the same intention. Like we're going to go kill kids at madrasas who are 11 years old because they're going to grow up to be the next Osama bin Laden. Like this is how sick 
this policy is, you guys. I mean, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that there are people overseeing this genocidal intent, bombing grain silos, bombing infrastructure that they know houses food and clean water. In fact, Minar, in 2022, the fact that there was a cholera outbreak yeah. in Yemen, this is something that is caused by um, water. water. Yeah. Like the, I mean, yeah, it makes me sick. Um, Honestly, cover, covering Yemen for the last seven years <laughs> has made me fucking sick. I'm not going to lie. It is one of the most disturbing conflicts I have ever covered. I mean, I thought Gaza was bad and it is so bad. Mm. It's so bad. But just to see this, the barbarity of the U.S. empire and the Saudis and the UAE and now Israel getting involved and just how it's basically being used as this geopolitical like outpost for like empire and like weapons manufacturers just to fuel the military industrial complex. It is the most disturbing, disgusting thing I have ever seen in my life. It makes you really question like reality. Like, is this really happening? And how is this OK? How is this OK? I mean, we've been hearing about 23 million people starving, famine. Like, I'm so lucky to be able to go to the grocery store and buy organic groceries. And like, I just can't imagine these people who are forced to eat, you know, dirt. And this is completely okay. Every single president needs to be taken to the Hague that has authorized this kind of this this kind of warfare. And not just the presidents, but every single executive, at, you know, at these weapons manufacturers and that these think tanks, these hawkish think tanks that are basically, you know, driving these policies, writing them out so that they can get, you know, funding and, and make profits off of the lives of these innocent, innocent people. I mean, as a mother, when I see the pictures of those skeletal children, my heart sinks every single time. And I just want to give my own son who's four years old, like a, the biggest hug, because I just can't imagine what these parents are going through. And it's like, you're right. Nobody cares. Like, it's just people just move on with their life. I mean, let's talk about how this even started, because I was really, I guess I was enlightened to find out that the U.S. got involved in Yemen kind of like, like almost just as, as, a response to like Saudi Arabia getting upset about the Iran nuclear deal. Like it was like there was barely any thought that went into this. It was basically a bunch of Obama advisors being like, yeah, like we want to placate Saudi Arabia. So we're going to like lead this effort where Saudi wants to completely invade and and relentlessly bomb this area that we're also fighting the AQAP which is just so counterintuitive to like the U.S. war on terrorism in general. The fact that the U.S. is already in Yemen bombing, you know, allegedly bombing Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is at odds with Houthis. Mm -hmm. They were fighting each other. And they one, were sworn and enemies. One, and at one point, by the way, I think it was the State Department. I don't remember if it was the State Department or, or who, but it, it was one of the U.S. military agencies that called the Houthis at that time, at the period you're talking about, because they were fighting Al-Qaeda so successfully, as the one group that successfully fight, uh, defeating Al-Qaeda in Yemen. See, this is incredible. I guess just elaborate on like the beginning of this war. Like what, what were the circumstances? And also just like, how do you even explain that counterintuitive nature of like trying to now target a group that is targeting the group that we're allegedly fighting and the entire premise of the war on terror. 
Well, you know, it it is complex. I don't think there's one thing we can point to to say like that's what started the the war because it is so complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yemen itself has been an outpost for the U.S. military for over 20 years, um, just like Afghanistan was in the so-called war on terror. That's the role that Yemen played as well. And so we see the United States fighting, you know, so its so-called war on terror in the deserts of Yemen. Um, but we do know that al-Qaeda has basically only flourished mm-hmm. <laughs> in Yemen. And a lot of these fighters end up going just over the, you know, Bab al-Mindib Strait into Ethiopia and into Somalia. And those make up the Somali uh, al-Qaeda fighters as well. And so, and then that's also where Obama famously um, waged his drone war, which gave him the name Drone King. Okay, and this was before the war in Yemen with the Saudi coalition started. Um, And so because of the U.S. military interference in Yemen and because the United States used Yemen as this military outpost for the geopolitical interest that I had mentioned, Yemen, it really pushed Yemen to the brink of like this, these, this extreme levels of poverty, even 20 years ago. And so Yemen was already the poorest country in the Middle East because of, you know, colonialism, because of modern day colonialism that was brought on by the United States. And through its support of the uh, Ali Saleh um, uh, presidency, Yemen never was able to flourish because he allowed the United States to conduct these drone strikes in its backyard and as you know, Abby, and as we all know, as you've covered through the Empire Files, when the United States is in a country, the last thing it wants to do is empower the people. It's going to keep the people chained down uh, through colonialism, uh, starving, and making sure that only the elite, only the the people of the elite, the 1% of that country are going to flourish and benefit for, ha- for their presence there. And so this is where Obama famously... Um, drone striked weddings, funerals, and even drone striked the Al Alwaqi family, where an American citizen and his entire family were killed. Okay, so that was really the setup of the mm-hmm. crisis that we see now. And so, in 2015, when the Arab Spring was, you know, making its way through the Middle East, there was a lot of excitement. You know, for whatever whatever you may think about the Arab Spring, there was a lot of excitement among some countries, but in the countries that the United States didn't want the Arab Spring to flourish, countries like Bahrain or like Yemen, that's where um, the Yemeni people overthrew the government there. They were tired of the government. And so um, now through these all these failed negotiations and talks, uh, the Saudis basically put up a new president whose name is Al-Hadi. And he was just a puppet, of course, of the United States and of the Saudis. And the Saudis for a very long time also used Yemen as its own colonial outpost. Um, A lot of people don't know this, but Yemenis actually make up a huge working force in uh, Saudi Arabia. And so they make up actually uh, one of the major working forces in in Saudi Arabia. And so that's also a, a, a major reason why Saudi Arabia has always tried to maintain control of Yemen so that it can uh, exploit the very poor people there to work in their country. And so when the Arab Spring had come out and Al-Hadi was now put into power and uh, the... Wait, really quickly. Did So, so Saudi yeah. like installed this guy or... 
Was yeah, just... they installed they installed uh, Al- the Al Hadi government. Yes, uh-huh. Al Hadi himself. They installed him, but immediately mm-hmm. after uh, the Houthi movement um, was now very determined to take not control, but to basically their. I mean, their agenda from the very beginning was very clear that it was to liberate their country of colonialism and from any U.S. and Saudi influence. I mean, that was like their stated goal. It was never to take control for themselves. Um, and so and so that's what happened. They ousted the president, Al-Hadi. And where does Al-Hadi go? He goes to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> he, he fled to Saudi Arabia for refuge. And he's. I think he's still currently in Saudi Arabia right now. Um, he's not going to come back. But that's really where the, the conflict started. And so once um, the Houthis basically named their enemy as Saudi Arabia and removing all Saudi influence out of the country, that's when the Saudi bombings uh, began. And I think it's really important to note that there are some theories out there that the reason why the United States is really pumping Saudi Arabia with these weapons and helping them in this war is because Saudi, I mean, the world, um, the World Bank actually predicted that by 2022, which is this year, that Saudi Arabia would go bankrupt uh, because its oil supplies uh, have reached peak levels and their oil supplies are in decline. And so there's a theory out there, and I don't know if it's true or not, that this is the way um, in which the United States is basically kind of giving Saudi Arabia its last life support line and kind of boosting up the United Arab Emirates as the new major ally in the Middle East. And you can see that taking place in Yemen, even though Yemen or Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are part of the coalition the United States is actually rooting and helping more to support the UAE in its occupation of southern Yemen. And it wants the UAE to have more control of the Middle East than the Saudis. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's that's going to be an extremely fascinating fork in the road for the U.S. empire soon. If indeed Saudi has reached uh, peak supply, uh, not going to be very useful for us much longer um, it's going to be really interesting to see where we go from there. So the Houthi movement arose out of a rejection of colonialism, this infectious struggle for liberation in the region. How how far back do can we like um, trace the Houthi movement? I would say, um, I mean, they're pretty they're a pretty old movement, but they really rose to power and kind of gained prominence uh, under the Obama administration. That's really when we started to hear more about them because they were very much opposed to Obama's drone war. Uh, They were opposed to um, Ali Saleh's support uh, for the Obama administration and allowing the Obama administration to basically exploit the country to expand the war on terror. And we all know that the war on terror is just a means for, you know, pumping up the military industrial complex. And so it was very obvious. What's really interesting about the Houthi movement is that they have put their support um, behind issues like liberating Palestine. And so that's why a lot of people in the Middle East that support the liberation of Palestine view the Houthi movement as like a resistance movement. Um, and so the Houthis have been able to organize massive protests in Yemen where, I mean, we've seen these images where literally hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, if not reaching nearly a million people, are on the streets of Sana'a, okay, the capital of Yemen. And they're protesting Saudi bombs and colonialism and calling for the liberation of Palestine. Wow. <laughs> and, so, and so that's why the U.S., the Saudis and the UAE and Israel specifically has gotten involved because they are so terrified of this resistance. And the truth is, Abby, 
is that the media demonizes the Houthis. And I'm not saying that they're all great. You know, there's, of mm-hmm. course, there's going to be bad apples everywhere. But, you know, that's why the media demonizes uh, these groups, these resistance groups, is because they're terrified of them. They actually do hold a lot of power and influence. And if the Houthis are able to organize and get literally half the country out on the streets calling for the liberation of Palestine, they said, we're going to liberate Yemen and we're coming to Palestine next. Oof. Why do you think they're terrified? They're terrified of these people. I mean, it's you have to give them credit for fighting for seven years straight and having the ability to garner so much support. Still, exactly. I mean, after this genocidal bombing campaign has been waged, it's pretty incredible, Manara, and it's pretty incredible what they're calling for. People have just largely forgotten about this. You know, people who aren't following the news don't even know that this is really happening. They probably think that Biden ended the war. Where do we go from here and what do you foresee happening? One of the biggest things is we really have to push back against this big tech censorship because one of the major uh, news uh, stories that big tech, especially Facebook and Instagram, have censored is the war on Yemen. And so we have to really be careful about promoting any sort of censorship, because at the end of the day, these big tech giants from Google that's suppressing you know, news um, to Facebook to removing, like literally removing images of skeletal starving children in Yemen because it violates their community standards. We have to really break through this to make sure that people have access to information. We have to fight for our First Amendment right here in the United States to make sure we have access to information and alternative information so that we can be well-informed citizens. I mean, what would we do without independent media? And we also have to break the echo chamber. We can't keep talking, you know, me and you can't just keep talking to ourselves, right, about this, because we Mm -hmm. know about this issue. We have to go talk to our neighbors and people on the streets and start to protest, really, um, these massive uh, war crimes that are taking place and really break through this, like, you know, the Democrat, Republican, um, a dictatorship that we're that we're living under, and really uh, promote the idea of alternative candidates that will actually get us out of these conflicts and wars. Of course, you know we live <laughs> in the belly of the beast, the U.S. Empire. I don't know how much of that is possible to to break through, uh, but I do believe that it really starts with people. Uh, one person can make a wave. I mean, look at us, Mint Press. We are one of the ma- main organizations, media organizations that's covering Yemen. And I just explained it. You know, there's so much more even to talk about. But we're breaking through the mainstream media propaganda machine. One organization from just two correspondents on the ground, just a couple of people. Just imagine if more people knew and how empowered we would feel to really hold our elected officials accountable. And I think it really, really starts with just empowering ourselves and breaking through, you know, the left-right divides and um, just demanding access to information. I couldn't agree more, um, not only breaking through this duopoly, but the information stronghold that is perpetrated by big tech uh, in conjunction with the state, blacking out stories such as the ones that you just discussed, Minar, You are an incredible person. I'm honored to call you my friend. You are running an entire news organization that I'm also honored to be sitting on the board of, Mint Press News, my go-to source for a lot of foreign policy stuff. You have incredible writers on board like Alan McLeod that you just mentioned. Talk about just 
I mean, for people who have no idea, like your story and what Mint Press News is, like just talk about how you got to where you are, like building up this news organization and also like how people can support this work. Um, you know, I'm just a girl, an American girl who uh, happened to you know, go to Palestine. Uh, my parents are both Palestinians and I lived under Israeli occupation and apartheid. I witnessed firsthand human rights abuses that no child should ever have to witness. And it was there living under the thumb of, you know, the military industrial complex, the police state of Israel and witnessing apartheid policies at 12 years old that I decided that, you know, this was such a horrific uh, way to live. And so when we moved back to the United States, when I was about, you know, 12 and a half turning 13, I was kind of aware enough now to know that that lifestyle was just not okay. And so from there, I had turned to the media to witness how, uh, you know, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, basically work in the interest of these weapons manufacturers and these think tanks, these hawkish think tanks that are pushing for war and support for Israel, supporting for uh, its, its apartheid proxy state in the Middle East. And I had witnessed how they were flipping the narrative. And again, even though it was Palestine, even there, it was presented through a religious lens, Muslim versus Jew, when in reality, it's a issue of colonialism. Um, and so from there, from a very young age, I be, I witnessed what propaganda looks like. And I have never trusted mainstream corporate news ever since and just have always known that there has to be an alternative. And so, you know, just going through high school and college, I pursued broadcast journalism and I worked within, um, you know, broadcast journalism, local news. But I knew that it was alternative and independent media that um, would really make a difference in the way we covered things. And so I left corporate news and started Mint Press. Um, and from there, it's basically taken off. We, we launched in 2000, uh, 2011, so we're about, uh, or 2012, so we're about 12, uh, 10 years old. And we haven't ever looked back ever since. We've been covering issues of war and empire and First Amendment issues specifically. Um, and so that's where we're at right now. And I'm very proud of what we've built. And we work with some of the best journalists and analysts. And, you know, what's really important about Mint Press, too, and I'm sure you know, you know this, Abby, is that, you know, we always we always try to break the echo chamber by engaging people to have discussions. And I think that's really, really important. So um, we always invite people to engage in those conversations on our website. Just jumping in here for a little addition. We recorded this interview just a day or so before Russia invaded Ukraine. So I asked Menar to record a little follow-up about her opinion on the startling hypocrisy in coverage of Yemen, Palestine, and Ukraine, especially in terms of occupied people's right to resist. The West's grotesque double standards could not be more obvious in the way corporate media has been covering Russia's now week-long military actions in Ukraine versus the last seven years of U.S.-Saudi bombs, occupation, land, air, and sea blockade of Yemen that has created the world's worst humanitarian crisis. If you think about it, in just one week, the media gave more coverage to Russia's attack on Ukraine than all of the media coverage of the last seven years combined of the crisis in Yemen. We're talking about a crisis that has left 400,000 people dead and 23 million 
starving. And there's no question that racism plays a role here. I mean, apart from the media's the media pushing a very pro-NATO war agenda, we're seeing such blatant racism play out. Yemenis are treated as not worthy victims because they are Muslim, because they're Arab, and because they're brown. Whereas Ukrainians who are blonde, blue-eyed, Christian Europeans are treated as worthy victims. Um, now we have this famous clip of the CBS correspondent who said it blatantly. This isn't Iraq or Afghanistan. This is a relatively civilized European place where we wouldn't hope or expect this to happen. And he's, of course, referring to Ukraine um, and the refugees fleeing there and the people that are um, victims to the Russian bombs. I mean, how racist and dehumanizing um, is this? Um, you know, in the last week when Russian forces began their wide-ranging assault on Ukraine, the Saudi-led coalition, led, of course, and supported an arm to the T by the United States, launched more airstrikes in Yemen than Russia has in Ukraine. Saudi Arabia launched 150 airstrikes on Yemen in that first week. And so just to talk about media coverage, we actually conducted a study on Mint Press. It was written by um, Alan McLeod. You can find it on our website. That in a single week, uh, in that single week of the, that first week of Russia uh, invading Ukraine, Fox News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC ran almost 1,300 separate stories on the Ukraine invasion and not a single story on the Saudi-led war in Yemen where 150 airstrikes were dropped just in that first week. So in total, in, the, in that week between um, uh, February 21st and February 27th, those news outlets ran almost 1,300 separate stories on the Ukraine invasion and nothing on Yemen. And this was happening concurrently while even the U.S., was dropping bombs on Somalia, and Israel was bombing um, Syria. And I believe there was two stories that were covered on Syria and only one on the U.S. bombing spree in Somalia. And so if we just break down the numbers, that means these five outlets published 1,298 stories about Ukraine. That's one article per hour about Ukraine versus these other tragedies happening around the world and completely ignoring and uh, there being a complete media blackout on the U.S.-Saudi-led war in Yemen. It's completely and absolutely disgusting.